With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, it is November 29th. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you that celebrated. Hopefully it was a good week and we were off for a little bit um, there. And we're coming right back in and the, the market is is just pure chaos, um, is the best I can say. It is uh, clearly, I think that we're heading towards a winter unless something dynamically changes. Uh, Luna, the, the Luna collapse has caused this cascading effect that has now hit FTX, which in reality, went insolvent back in June. Uh, they just were able to hide it for a lot longer. And now BlockFi, I think less than 24 hours ago, just just went insolvent and filed Chapter 11. So essentially, the, the big issue that we're seeing is that our industry is, is losing kind of some of the main infrastructure level. Um, that leverage is clearly a bad thing. Uh, and algorithmic stable coins absolutely should be banned from any and all uh, platforms for, you know, well-known reasons at this point. But I heard somebody's launching a new one because theoretically they can do it better. I don't know why. Um, but most importantly, I think when we're thinking about the industry today, and we're really trying to say, you know, what did we learn over the last few years? And where is this going to go over the next few years? There's some technologies that absolutely have, have stood very solid. Um, blockchain has performed perfectly. Uh, liquidations happened much faster. We were able to investigate fraud uh, much faster. Uh, DeFi has has had almost zero issues, uh, a couple, couple kind of protocol levels, but it always seems to be with the humans. Um, the smart contracts are functioning as 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 promised. And so we really see a lot of the technology moving forward um, from a technology level. Now, that doesn't mean that we all are doing using things properly and, and legally. And I, that's really where our guest today with Peter and, and I've got a, a great co-host with Roani um, to really understand kind of we have to be able to merge this technology, um, both from the asset of, of access, utility, but also from legal standing as well. And I feel like we really kind of always put that legal standing on the back burner, um, build the technology and then go, well, they'll figure it out later. And the reality is we're seeing that does not work in a variety of ways. So before we uh, we, we get into Peter, Ruani, would you mind giving us a quick intro so uh, everyone can remember who you are? Thank you. Well, first, thank you, Jay, for inviting me to co-host. This is my first experience doing it. It's, I'm very excited. Of course, a little bit nervous, but very excited. So I am a, a copyright lawyer by, by training and profession. I head a copyright management organization in Canada. Uh, that works uh, with uh, the reuse rights of literary works. And uh, five years ago, we started playing around with blockchain technology and, and uh, have been using it first as proof of concepts uh, for the fan-to-fan -fan sale of a textbook, which was a proof of concept on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and now more recently with Imprimo, which is a LinkedIn for visual artists where creation claims uh, for visual art are timestamped on blockchain. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and, and Peter, uh, you, you have a very long storied background. So let's let's kind of dive a little bit into your history um, and then we'll dive into uh, Brown Rutnick, where you are today. Sure. Um, I became a lawyer back in 1993, which I can't believe how long ago that seems. 
um, after a couple of years of playing in a band that did not uh, succeed <laughs> and got out of law school, spent a year doing commercial litigation. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my second year as a lawyer, I got put on to a domain name case. And this is back in 94, 95, before the Anti-Cyber Squatting Consumer Protection Act came into play. Uh, the domain name was Porsche.com. It involved a lot of trademark issues. I found it incredibly interesting and just decided I'm doing trademark copyright and advertising law. <clears throat> um, and that's all I've done ever since about 1994. About half of my practice is litigation. So it's usually fighting in federal court and trademark infringement cases, copyright infringement cases. Um, <clears throat> we've had some false advertising cases. I've represented companies like Google. Uh, one of the biggest cases I handled was I defended Google in an action brought by two individuals who were trying to cancel the Google trademark on the ground that the term Google had become generic because people use it as a verb, which you're not supposed to do. So we uh, fought that case in the Ninth Circuit, uh, started in Arizona. We won on summary judgment, won on appeal, and Google's brand is still registered and one of the most valuable brands on the planet. I've represented Facebook in federal court litigation. I've done work for Bluetooth, Mozilla, Snapchat, uh, Apple, a lot of tech companies. So, you know, I was at a firm, Cooley, on the West Coast for 20 years. They were based in Silicon Valley, which is why we had a lot of tech clients. And then about three and a half years ago, I moved to my current firm, Brown Rudnick. We have about 250 lawyers at the firm. I'm the head of the trademark copyright and advertising group within the firm. Um, so I mentioned the litigation. The other half of my practice is counseling and prosecution. So it's mm -hmm. advising clients on what they can do in terms of you know, avoiding copyright infringement claims, uh, what brands they can adopt and use, what they should do to protect them. So it's all the non-litigation stuff that relates to these topics. But it's all I do. I don't do any patent work. I don't do anything outside of this particular field. And it's because I truly love it. I find it incredibly interesting. And as I'm sure we'll talk about today, it's an area of the law that is particularly impacted when technology changes. Whenever technology changes, and in the in the context of copyrights, and Ryan would, would certainly know this, you know, think about all the way back to when the photocopier was first in, invented. That created a raft That's of That's when we copy. got created. That's right. when we came onto the market. We were set up in order to deal with photocopying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's that why we were created. And it took a long time for the world to figure out what they could do now that you could make copies very easily. Then you had the internet. The advent of the internet changed everything because all of a sudden people thought, if I find something on the internet, it must be free and available and I can copy it and use it. And so the world had to adapt. And when I say the world, it, I'm particularly referencing the courts, Congress, not only in the United States, but other governments around the world have to adopt laws that deal with challenges presented by new technology. Peer-to-peer um, -peer file sharing was a huge deal. And for anyone who does copyright law, all of a sudden, you could get music for free from Napster or LimeWire. And you had a lot of litigation. You had major you know, record companies suing college kids and suing Napster. And eventually the world starts to figure out, oh, this is the way we can do things legally without infringing or diminishing 
intellectual property rights. And now we have NFTs. And NFTs are the <clears throat> the latest, greatest thing for trademark copyright lawyers. Um, and it's keeping us very, very busy. I love hearing that. And, and again, some really amazing stories and, and brands that you've had to defend. So, you know, one of the things that I, I constantly talk about on, on, on Y Whales and a variety of others is that a change in technology doesn't mean the laws necessarily change overnight. In fact, it takes a long time um, for, for lawmakers to understand where where is this technology going? Because if we were to implement laws today based on NFT top technologies that sits, I can promise you over the next decade, it's going to change and become outdated. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's even harder to update those laws that are put in place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Peter, and, and if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us some some thoughts around, you know, because I love that Napster example. Um, but what else have you kind of represented uh, in, along those lines of where a new technology has emerged? And there's generally a pause before before regulators are able to fully flush out how this can be done. Yeah. So what typically happens is when there is a technological advance and consumers can buy things in different form, like an NFT, or they can buy them through different means, like online platforms. <clears throat> what you usually see is the wild, wild west for a few years, three or four years, because of a couple things. First of all, the courts haven't dealt with these issues. Congress hasn't dealt with the issues. Business moves much faster than the government. And the second thing is that people tend to think that because they can do something, that it must be okay to do. You know, like, oh, I can get something on the internet or I can get, you know, music from Napster. It must be fine. It takes usually three, four, five years for people to realize that that's not the case. And it usually takes litigation. And you're seeing that in the NFT space right now. I mean, there's multiple cases in federal court that have been brought over the last year and a half. And I predict the the rate of litigation about NFTs is probably going to drop, but not for another couple of years until judicial rulings come out that address some of these very interesting issues, at least issues that are highly interesting for IP attorneys. <laughs> yeah, and, and Rani, I, I guess the same question for you, because this is a little bit of, uh, it is your world as well. I mean, have you, what, what, how would you kind of compare some of this, these changes in technology and, and laws um, along those lines? I, I think Peter laid it out really nicely. Uh, sometimes we wish that the legislator would act faster, uh, but ultimately it's probably not in the interest in the long run, as you've said. A lot of the challenges, like I would say 90% of the questions and things people are doing that we think, yeah, you probably shouldn't be able to do that. The law is probably already sufficiently robust to deal with it. Yep. And it's really on the fringes where we're like, oh, well, with that technology, there's no actual reproduction. It's just a pointer. Since it's just a pointer, is there really a copyright infringement? Do we need to change the legislation to say a pointer is a copyright infringement if it's not done with the authorization of the, you know, the right owner? Uh, similarly, when we were dealing with the internet, it took years, but eventually we were like, okay, reproduction, that happens on the internet. But making something available to the public online. Well, that's a thing that has value on its own. And it's not really a copyright protection everywhere in the world. And it kind of needs to be when you're dealing with, with the internet, it needs to be protected everywhere in the world. And so it takes time. Uh, but I would say that 
it's the Wild West in the sense that people are trying things, they're trying to get away with it, or they're not being careful. But it's not as if it's lawless. The law is there. These things will get to court and people will get their fingers tapped. I, I agree 100%. I mean, there are some IP attorneys these days who think the law needs to be drastically changed to address NFT issues. I don't think that's the case. I think the law is robust. It is what it is, but it's a process of the consuming public and owners of IP coming to understand what they can and can't do, and the courts ruling on some of these disputes, which is really going to help matters. But we're at the, in the nascent stages of this. Yeah. So, so help me, uh, educate me and, and our listeners a little bit, Peter and, and, and Rowani, feel free to hop in there as well. But Peter, so if I want to uh, register my, my brand, I, I say, hey, I would like to register my brand or, or my image globally. What, is that, what does that entail today if I say I want to have a global um, copyright on, on the Y Whales brand? Yeah. So you have to keep in mind, you know, these are different subspecies of intellectual property, trademarks, copyrights, and then you have patents over there, but we won't talk about those today, not the least because I'm not a patent lawyer. <laughs> but so Y Whales as a brand, you're talking about trademark issues. So if you came to me today and said, hey, Peter, I just came up with a new name for the company. I really want to use it. It's Y Whales. What we would do is assess whether your use of Y Whales will infringe any existing trademark rights. So you do trademark availability searches. And we search the records of the trademark offices in the U.S. and in countries around the world. We come back and say, hopefully, Jay, this looks pretty good. So good to go. Okay. Now, registering that and protecting it as a trademark and, and just Trademark and brand are virtually synonymous, but you would start by filing an application because you're based in the U.S. with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Within six months after you file, you should be filing in foreign countries because if you file within six months, you get the benefit of your U.S. filing date. So that means if you filed for Y Whales today and next week somebody filed in the EU for Y Whales for the exact same goods and services, as long as you file within six months of your U.S. application, you have priority over them and can stop them. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it's there are international treaties in place which make it procedurally easy to file for trademark protection in foreign countries. However, at the end of the day, you still have to register your mark with the trademark offices of Japan, China, South Africa, you name it. The EU, we're fortunate. The EU shares one trademark office. Um, it no longer covers the UK, which due to Brexit, which is aggravating, but it's, it can be expensive to register a brand, brand globally. So if you're a mid-sized company, cost is always a factor and you need to think what markets are most important. That's one consideration. Two, how much money do I have? And three, are there areas of the world where trademark piracy is prevalent? And there are China, India, you find a lot of individuals who search the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office records, see that somebody's filed. They file for the exact same mark, hoping mm -hmm. that you don't file on that six-month priority window, and then they can hold you up for money. Mm -hmm. So, it's Trademark squatting. Yeah, trademark squatting is another way to, yeah, trademark squatting, trademark piracy. It happens all the time in some places in the world more than others. So, and, and you'll see where I'm going with my list of questions here. Um, yeah. So, so. In a 
in a very new asset class, which is Web3. So blockchain, you know, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, all, all the fun stuff that we get to play with every day, um, we generally see the average age to be much younger. Um, these are new entrepreneurs playing with new technologies. Um, and while some of them are very well capitalized, uh, I'd probably say 98% of them are not. Um, they have great ideas that they've started out with. And in, a lot, and, and in most cases, a lot of them start out with nothing and they do become well capitalized over time. But generally, they didn't start with really good legal legal advice right. uh, on day one. Generally, they you know they they used a random name and they they bought the they bought a you know dot io or dot xyz you know name. They don't own the dot com and they just say hey we're we're just over here. So so what happens when you know hey uh, I, I bought this I've I've built a brand now and all of a sudden uh, the sharks are in the water circling. You know what? What's kind of the first inklings of like I have a problem and I need to I need to go seek out you know counsel like Roanne or, or you Peter to to try to start dealing with this. Yeah. So I mean, this happens all the time. And it's funny because I've done so much work with tech companies. I mentioned some of the larger ones I've done work for, but I have handled trademark copyright work for hundreds and hundreds of startups who don't have any money or didn't think to go to lawyers until they already picked their name or they picked the name of a product. And in those situations, it doesn't mean you're you're done. It doesn't mean you have to change your brand. You want to look and see who else is out there using similar trademarks, similar brands, and are they using for things that are related to what you're going to do? Because trademark rights are defined by the goods and services. You can have a United Airlines, a United Van Lines, a United or Delta Healthcare, Delta Airlines, Delta, you know, if the goods and services are different. So that's the first thing we analyze. If it looks like there's somebody in your space and in technology, even though we're talking web three and like where we are today, there are web two technologies that would be seen as related to web three. And if somebody had a brand they were using for related goods and services, I would investigate them. You may want to negotiate with them, see if you can acquire their trademark rights. You may want to try to work out a coexistence agreement where they agree look, we won't use a logo that looks like yours. We won't use a logo that looks like yours. We'll stay out of each other's niche space um, and avoid a lawsuit. That sounds then, very similar to the uh, to the Apple music and Apple computers uh, yes, from way back in the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are lots of brands that are the same that coexist in different fields and they often work out agreements to keep themselves in different fields. Because at the end of the day, you know, what a court cares about and really the primary purpose of trademark law is to avoid consumer confusion. You know, so if the parties can figure out steps to take to avoid consumer confusion, it's good for their business. It's good for the goodwill they build up in whatever they're offering. And it also avoids consumer confusion. Fabulous. So what are some of the, you know, kind of, again, so now we, we know the process and it's expensive. Um, we know kind of when it's time to start to start seeking this out. Um, but, but I think my, my really kind of overall thought is, um, how do you even enforce like there's, because now we're dealing, like, let's say that I go to all the trouble and do libraries and I, I do all that, spend all these money. We're talking about anonymous people that are anywhere around the world that are, that are maliciously going to attempt to use, use my brand for scams used. Like we see it every single day on, on Twitter. Um, we saw a really, you know, just beyond amazing uh, instance where some random person registered like Northrop Grunham 
and paid eight dollars and said, "Hey, we're stopping business in this part of the world," and it was a you know massive issue. Like, how do you deal with the anonymous people um, that are attacking your brand at that point? It's it's well, in short, it's very difficult. Okay, um, <laughs> it's not impossible because if you can't, I mean, that's that's one thing about Web three: the decentralized nature of everything now make, does make it harder to find infringers. You know, if they're somewhere, I'm not picking on a country, but let's say they're, I'll just say somewhere in Eastern Europe <laughs> and, you know, there's, they're a hacker. They've come up with something. They figured out a way to use your mark in the context of a domain name in a way that might be confusing to consumers. It's often next to impossible to identify who they actually are. So in those situations, you do have another route, which is to go to online service providers and ask them for help. So some of them will take down, all of the, the major ones have complaint features and buttons. You can go in and submit information. You can get websites taken down. When it comes to domain names, you can file, you can do anything from filing a domain name arbitration proceeding with ICANN to going directly to the registrar and saying, I want this taken down. Here's what I have to show that they're using this for bad purposes. Um, I mean, this is not, uh, a scientific figure. It's just my own estimate, but I would say well over 90% of domain names right now are registered through privacy services. So it used to be, you could go onto the who is databases and find yep. out exactly who registered a domain name, but not even those names were always real. Now it's, you go and it's domains by proxy or an organization like that. Um, but you can go to the registrar, you can go to ICANN. There are other ways to tackle this. It's just, there's no getting around the fact that when you create a, 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 an entire system that is decentralized and that cherishes anonymity, it's always going to be a challenge to find who's doing what. Love it. Love it. And I think one of the challenges as well is that it's a big game of whack-a-mole. It's like, it is endless. It's not as if you deal with it, you've gotten it all down and now you could rest. Like you could never, ever rest. If your brand is important to you, if uh, it's gotten, and the more successful it is, the more you're gonna be whacking that hammer. Yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, and, it's and challenging. Think, think even before the, the rollout of so many new GTLDs, you know, when you just had .com, .gov, .edu, you know, it was a little simpler, but even then, if I said, hey, you should proactively go out and register every domain you can think of in those five, with those five TLDs that incorporates Y Whales, you could come up with hundreds of various Y Whales Inc., you know, just tack on other letters to it. And it, yep. so Ronnie's right. It's, it's whackable, but, you know, there are things you can do to, at the end of the day, hopefully minimize uses of your brand that really would hurt you and confuse people and, and leave, you know, registration of domain names that might bother you, but they're not really hurting you, just leave them be. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it, it's such a challenge. And so we've, you know, again, now, now trademark on, you know, web one, web two, um, you guys have a lot of tools, uh, you know, that, that, like you said, you have, ICANN, you have, you know, DMCA. So digital music copyright act. So there's a lot of things, even though we're not talking about logos and whatnot, there's, there's systems, processes, and procedures that have been built up. If, if someone 
uh, you know, takes, you know, uh, I hate whywhales.com and I really, really want to, you know, take them off uh, the internet. I can go to the register. I can, there's a legal process to do that. Um, blockchain's immutable. It, it exists when it's decentralized. Um, so, so let's, let's pivot over now to kind of NFTs, um, which is the main part of our conversation and why you two are here today. Um, how has your world kind of been turned upside down, uh, you know, Peter and Roani, um, ba- based on this new concept of these digital artworks or digital, um, you know, collectibles or whatever we're calling them this week, um, and, and the fact that some of them can go from being worth pennies to hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars uh, within a few days? Yeah, so I, I sort of view this as involving three main markets. Number one, you have intellectual property owners or owners of publicity rights. So famous people have a layer of rights associated with their persona, their name, image, likeness. Uh, But owners of trademarks, copyrights, personality rights or publicity rights. That's one mark because and they're interesting because they want to take advantage of this new technology. They want to monetize NFTs using their brands that they've developed over time. Um, it's good advertising and it actually might be good for revenue. The second market is the platforms, the marketplaces. So the open seas of the world, you know, who are making money on facilitating sales of NFTs that may incorporate intellectual property. The third is your everyday consumer, your collector, the people who want to buy this and they don't want to be misled. Although there's a lot of discussion out there about, you know, how much do consumers really care? Like if you buy an NFT that has the image of a Nike tennis shoe, do you really care whether it's authorized by Nike or not? I mean, you if, might. If the, if the impact, if there's going to have an impact on the value of the NFT moving forward, once it's known that it wasn't an authorized NFT, for yeah. example, then you would care. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think most people would. Um, but then you have the issue of like, are they necessarily going to know like that the yuga labs case involving the board Ape yacht club nfts <clears throat> is a really good example of this writer rip who's an artist and has something to say about the world um created all these nfts which he said were satirical in nature and also transformative and sold them on various platforms they look like board Ape yacht club nfts the official ones and people bought them and he supposedly in his public statements has made millions of dollars off of this. So you have a lawsuit being fought right now between Yuga Labs, the owner of the Board Ape Yacht Club NFT collection, and Mr. Rips, who has gone on record saying, I should be able to do this because it's satire. And I'm also creating works that are transformative, although that's highly debatable. Rani, when you're, you know, kind of, consulting with people about nfts what's what's that biggest misconception that right off the bat you're seeing just time and time again they're not people aren't understanding this you know what what i found interesting a a few people early on perhaps now there's a little bit more awareness um the basic rules of copyright uh, i guess perhaps because i live in the space i think everybody understands the basic rules of copyright that they don't actually understand the basic rules of copyright, such as it is not because you have a physical copy of the book that you own the copyright of the book and you could do whatever you want with it. And this replicates itself in the NFT world. Well, I have this original print 
and I'm going to create an NFT. Well, that's great that you have this original print, but you don't own the copyright in it. So you can't turn that into an NFT. So that like basic entry point into who can create an NFT and what are the rights that you need in order to have to be able to mint an NFT legally is like completely missing it. And, and, and yet it's something that I think when you stop people and you tell them, think about it, mm-hmm. right? You bought that book. You can't now, you know, reproduce the book and share it, yes. right? The physical ownership does not give you the right of copyright. And it's the same thing with other, you know, works that you want to now use as an NFT. You will trigger a use, which is a protected use. That's- so that's going in. I was going to say, that's a great point. And I always use this example. And so, Jay, to get back to your original question, a lot of my work in this is advising people what they can and can't do. And Ronnie's right. People don't know. But I use this example. If If I buy a book, someone owns the copyrights in that book. I get the book. I can turn around and sell it to you, Jay. You know, I have every right to do that. What I can't do, I can't make reproductions of it. I can't make 100 copies and start selling those. I can't make derivative works based on that book. I can't take it and alter it. And the problem with NFTs is even the act of <clears throat> transforming a print into an NFT is creating a derivative work. And you need copyrights to do that. So that that is going into like how can a work become an NFT and the issues related there. But then when you buy an NFT, what can you then do with the NFT? What do you actually buy? Mm-hmm. And what can you do with the NFT afterwards? That's I think um, is is another area where there is first of all it's, it's very misleading. I think the way people talk about NFTs, the way platforms talk about NFTs, whether it's OpenSeas or others. Ownership. You own this. It's exactly. immutable. It's you exactly. own this. This is yours forever. So it's very misleading. Yep. Uh, and uh, maybe deliberately so, maybe not. But the end result is that people are doing things with the NFTs that they're not entitled to do, that they were never given the right to do, uh, and that eventually they will get in trouble for. So let's let's do for point of clarification. Um, we've talked about Yugo Labs and and Board Ape Yacht Club, which has a very definitive uh, copyright stance on this. Um, so so let's talk about them because they're they're the big guys in the room. Um, you know, so what is Board Ape Yacht Club's current uh, copyright around those images when you buy it? Well, when you buy it, I, I you know I'd have to go back and look at their you know their terms and conditions today, but typically what they are offering to you is a, a work, an NFT. Sometimes you are now getting, and I'm not sure whether it's Yuga Labs, but there are other providers now who are giving you something called commercial rights, but they yeah. specifically say not copyrights. So that mm-hmm. what they mean by commercial rights is if I buy my NFT, I might be able to use it. It's okay to use it for advertising purposes, which wasn't clear before, or you know, it's clear that I can resell it to somebody else without material alterations to it. Um, but no one, to my knowledge, is yet selling the copyrights associated with an NFT because that would be very damaging, I think, to the work. It would allow somebody to do anything they want with that NFT, create derivative works, create multiple copies, devalue the value of that NFT, which is not good for anyone, except the person who's doing that. Peter, one interesting uh, thing you word you use when describing uh, what Yuga Lab uh, authorizes is today. And that's really interesting that 
initially, it was not the same rights that they were granting. They changed the rights along the way. That's right. Which you would think that, hey, immutability, blockchain, I buy something, nobody can change what I bought. But in fact, what you've bought has changed over time. Uh, in, as a one way, it, you know, granted it was to the benefit of the owner of the NFT, but it was a one way change <laughs> to the terms of a purchase that could have happened, you know, a long time prior. Right. Uh, and so that that uh, idea that the project owner can change the terms of the NFT uh, without having to re-enter to a negotiation with the owner of the NFT is also very misleading and is not what blockchain is supposed to be about. That is not the promises of when you, you know, if you read one of the, the first big, big uh, block sellers, uh, blockbuster books on blockchain, blockchain revolution, like it, it, that was not the promise of blockchain back then. So here's a question and, and for clarity, let's go back to the original owner, the original minter. How, how do we determine that they are, <laughs> that, that, that even that they are, because, um, you know, you go, you go labs. And again, we'll, we'll talk about board of the club. Um, now we're going to have to dive into a little bit of technology and I'll help here. So that was minted on an ERC 721 contract. Okay. Um, that means that, that you labs created their own code. They deployed it on the Ethereum, uh, mainnet, and then they minted all these out of this definitively. It was their contract. They, they, they built it, they designed it, they deployed it. It's very easy to verify and go back to them. A lot of other NFTs, especially ones that are minted on, you know, uh, platforms like OpenSeas, are minted on what's called an ERC eleven fifty five contract, and those contracts are actually owned by by the platform. So when you're minting, you know, you go into OpenSea and you say, "Hey, this is my account, and I want to make a hundred NFTs and use theirs." How do we define who actually owns that? Because technically, uh, OpenSea owns the eleven fifty five contract, not the seven twenty one contract. Or am I getting way too technical at this point? That is pretty technical. I actually thought you were going to go somewhere altogether different. Well, you, is, go, yeah, answer my question and, and then come up with a better one. That's why you're co-hosting with me, Romani. Right. And, and as you know, that's kind of the reason why I got involved with blockchain, you know, way back was these promises that were being made that finally creators were able to, were going to be able to kind of monetize their work and it was yep. going to reduce piracy, et cetera. Uh, and it was going to be a revolution. Now, I've been around for a while. I, I was around when Web two became Web 1 became Web 2. I was working in copyright policy in the Canadian federal government. And we were asking ourselves the same thing about the information superhighway back then. Uh, and it was very two very challenging decades for uh, most creators as a result of that. And so that's why we started playing around with the technology to see you know, what might be, how might this develop into the future? And one thing we kept asking ourselves is when, at, at the time we were just working with smart contracts, not NFT, yes, this is back in 2016, 2017. When you attach a work to a smart contract, how do you make sure that the person who's attaching the work to the smart contract is the rightful owner? How do you do that? Is there any way to verify whether it's because people don't care Okay, that's one situation. But what if people do care? What if the work that's attached to the contract and in the use case we were doing was a book? And I actually want to make sure that the payment goes back to the author of the book. How do I verify that? Isn't blockchain this, you know, distributed, persistent database in the sky going to be able to tell me, yes, this is the right 
owner or know this is not the right owner, right? Um, And so that's what we call the attribution problem. And that at the heart of a transaction, if you get attribution right, when you're doing a transaction with a creative work, that, you know, nothing else can be trusted, essentially. Mm. And so this big trust machine, we used to call it trust machine. I haven't heard it being called the trust machine in a while, actually. (laughs) Um, this big, you know, so, so, so-called so trust machine was not going to really be trusted. And in fact, what we went through with Napster that almost took down the music industry is going to be exponentially worse as we go into Web3. Um, and so really, that's that's kind of a lot of the work that we're doing at Prescient Innovations and at Access Copyright is actually about solving that attribution problem and leveraging the technology and the data that is there so that you can verify who owns the work before it gets minted. Gotcha. That I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, I mean, I, you're going to see more and more lawsuits against people who mint NFTs but lack the rights to the intellectual property that are embodied in that NFT. So uh, I can name six different lawsuits over the last year that have involved this type of situation. And this is why I take it back to Napster. So Napster got sued. Uh, the college kids who bought music from Napster were getting sued individually. And ultimately, <laughs> Napster was in the wrong. They were violating copyrights. But more importantly, I think the market responds by you know, becoming more knowledgeable about what they're buying, in this case, NFTs, knowing that they want to be able to go to a platform where they're buying authentic works that they can actually get rights in and avoid being sued by someone like a record company, or in this case, you know, Yuga Labs. Um, so I, I, I think Ryan is right that this is going to be an exponential problem with Web three, but I'm optimistic. I think that it will resolve itself over time. So we've very clearly, for anyone listening, we've defined that if you're interested in this space, whether investing or purchasing NFTs, or you want to create them, you know, a graphic artist is is a necessary, uh, you know, part of that equation. Um, a, a blockchain company to be able to to um, set up your contract and everything else is absolutely going to be needed as well. Um, if, if you do not have a lawyer in the mix, and, and to be clear, <laughs> a trademark and copyright lawyer in the mix, you know, you're you're doing a very dis- big disservice uh, to to your your potential clients uh, or or investors that are going to be purchasing these things, or the or the community that you're around. Um, and and while it can be very expensive, as you said, to do global copyright uh, across the board in that level, the, the concept of at least getting the advice to understand the different phases that you're going to need to walk through um, certainly is not, uh, you know, massively expensive, I'm guessing, guys. It, it's not. I mean, I think initial consultation with an attorney who knows trademark and copyright law will go a long way, even if you don't have a budget to file trademark applications all around the world or you know, take steps like that, that the big companies will, at least you know sort of what the guidelines are because something that Ryanie said earlier, I agreed with completely. People don't generally, even very educated, smart people don't understand copyright. <laughs> so just to get the initial guidelines is, I think, well worth somebody's time. So let, let me kind of pivot to we understand very clearly you know, where we sit today. Um, but let's go ahead and, and try to educate because uh, we do have a lot of you know lobbyists and, and legislatures that for some reason listen to me uh, on the show. So if, if we could wave a magic wand and we could start the process of, of common sense legislation, common sense, you know, true copyright enforcement, what would that even, what would you 
what would you want it to look like? Where would, what direction would you want it to go? And, and kind of, you know, again, it's a blue sky uh, conversation, Peter. Yeah. I mean, I, I am in the group of trademark copyright lawyers that, that don't actually think there need to be major revisions to the law. Okay. What I think that Congress should look at is, are there things that we can do that would make it easier to identify people who are engaging in infringing activity on, you know, in web three world. And I'm not technically sophisticated enough to know what those steps would be, but that's where I think the the law should go. Because I think the underlying, I mean, the existing copyright and trademark laws, they are robust and they will address these issues. The problem is enforcement. You know, if there's a way that we can make enforcement easier, that's what Congress should be focusing its attention on. So uh, I agree completely with with Peter. Uh, I think 99% of the situations that we're seeing in Web3 where there's infringement happening, the the laws that exist today can deal with, right? It's still going to go to court because the people don't get it yet. (laughs) (laughs) But the courts will get it. Yep. Uh, for 99%. You'll have the odd thing, like, you know, it's a reminting, it's a second mint, and there's no actual reproduction that is being done by the person who's doing the second mint, and it's just a pointer, and there's no... But that's really the odd situation. Most situations are going to be covered by the existing laws. And it's all about remedies. And it, it's and the challenge, why it is so difficult, it's because it is so freaking expensive. Yep. That's the problem. So, for example, I know that in the U.S. now they have a small claims court mm-hmm. for copyright. Yep. That's helpful. That is really helpful. So if there could be ways, because most artists and most copyright infringements are like it's death by a thousand cuts. Right. That's the challenge. And so it, you can't go after the thousand cuts because it's too costly. Every cut costs you too much to try to bandage up, right? So it, it's really finding the, the ways to enforce the right um, that is cost, cost efficient so that we have actual protection. You know, there's, there's a saying amongst copyright lawyers that co- a right without a remedy is no right. So we have the rights. The rights are there. The remedies are really difficult because they're very expensive. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out there and I want to be clear. I'm not endorsing what I'm about to say. I'm just (laughs) saying this is the reality. So we, the, the, um, currently they've since, uh, moving over to proof of stake on Ethereum, there is a new enforcement, uh, action that's, that's being taken. We saw it happen with tornado cash. Um, we've seen it happen with, uh, with, with kind of OFAC, compliance, uh, you know, uh, transactions, where if a wallet is deemed uh, not to be OFAC compliant, uh, I think at this point now we're at 70% of uh, proof of stake Ethereum nodes are not writing, just they're ignoring any transactions that come from those wallets. Um, thoughts thoughts on, on that level of, of enforcement? I mean, if you're talking about enforcement directly by the government, when it comes to the intellectual property issues that we're discussing, that would come not from the Patent and Trademark Office, which doesn't have the authority to sue people for infringement, but it would come from the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, under the, the context of its, its mission to protect consumers. So, for example, if there are misleading brands being used in the context of NFTs or misleading advertising about NFTs as to what you get as a consumer, that could, that would 
fall within the FTC's purview and they can take enforcement action. Okay. I never thought of it uh, that way, Jay. It's, a, it's an interesting. Uh, no, no, I don't want this to happen. But I'm just saying. I mean, but it's, <laughs> it's an interesting thought experience because what, what, one of the reasons why blockchain is, I think, going to be so challenging for rights owners is precisely because you don't have a neck to choke. Yep. Like you, you can't stop it. Like you don't have that bottleneck to stop the continued flow of, of the work that is being infringed, right, in this distributed ecosystem. We're talking about NFTs right now that are being sold on platforms, but we still have a platform. Yep. Yeah. In the future, we're not going to have platforms. That's not how they're going to be sold. They're going to be sold P2P. Yep. Um, and then how do you stop it if you don't actually have an open seas to do a notice and takedown request? And that's really, I mean, we're not there today, but I think that is where we're going, definitely where we're going. I mean, the proof of concept we did in 2017 was the P2P sale of a book. P2P, you deploy a smart contract and yep. you attach a work to it. Right now, you know, there are cost elements, you can't attach the whole work, it's too expensive, et cetera, but eventually those will be worked out and you're gonna be seeing P2P transactions with creative assets and that's going to be really difficult maybe the only way is in fact by going at the wallet level and the notes i don't know interesting yeah. I, I mean i agree completely right now you have platforms and even though you might not be able to identify the people who are actually infringing copyrights in the form of nfts you can at least go to the platforms for help either through a notice and takedown procedure or you could file a lawsuit and claim that they're engaging in secondary infringement. Um, but if, if you're talking about purely P2P sales of NFTs, that's problematic. I think, though, that one one thing that might be reason for some optimism is that the you know, consumers are going to want, I think, at some point, some assurance that what they're buying is what they think they're buying. And that's why platforms might, you might not need them, but people may want to go to a platform because they know that there's some guarantee of authenticity and validity and you know, that, that's one thing that might be reason for good, <laughs> for, for not losing all hope. Rooney, um, you know, kind of continue on with, with these, with the thoughts of, of where this is going and how that we should be thinking about the space. So we're, we're still very, very early in the development of the use cases and the use of the technology as well. So we're going to see lots of progression. There are a lot of promises that are made about a blockchain and, and misrepresentation that in the end, when you look be below the surface are not really happening. So buyer beware and, and you know, be careful, know what you're actually buying. But for the artists themselves, one of the things that was so exciting about NFTs is this idea of the resale royalty. Uh, visual artists, unlike musicians who get royalties every time their song is played, visual artists, once the painting is sold, except for in a few situations in some countries around the world, but not in the US and not in Canada, at least not yet, there is no resale right after there is a resale of the work uh, for the same or at a higher price. And so they don't, they're not able to, to partake in the increased value of their work. And having that resale uh, was really important. It was really attractive to visual artists. And then what we saw recently is that uh, it's, the, it's a voluntary 
turns out that the resale payment is voluntary and that it's actually managed by the platform and not embedded in the NFT itself. And the platforms have along the way changed terms and, and some have said we're not going to collect the resale royalty anymore. Um, and of course, artists were up in arms, and I think some of the platform have reversed course again. Uh, but I think that's that's a, an important lesson for everyone. Um, I think it is possible to embed the resale in the smart contract itself. Yes, there are some challenges. I know that you've worked with the uh, with the the different NFT standards, and there are challenges. And you know, what if it's a wallet that I already own? It's my wallet, and I change it. Do I have to pay the resale? There are all kinds of, of things to be sorted out. But then it's really important not to mislead uh, mm -hmm. about what what is actually happening, what is programmed, and what is actually happening on the side, such as the terms on which you buy the NFT, such as the resale royalty, etc. Yeah. I mean, the platforms can't sell what they don't have. And what they don't often have is the copyrights in a work of authorship. But what they've done is they've expanded at times and, and they're going back and forth trying to figure out what's going to work best. But they'll say things like, well, you get this NFT and the commercial rights associated with the NFT. What does that mean? It's not really a legal term of art. It certainly isn't a term that has meaning in intellectual property world. But what they mean is you can sell this and you're not going to have to pay a royalty back to us that will go back to the artist. Mm. Yeah. And, and just as a technical note, I mean, we've written ERC 721 contracts and, and a variety of others, and you can in the contract <clears throat> put in those royalties, you know, every time it's going to be sold. What I found very interesting um, is uh, that, that exchanges can actually, I don't know how they're doing it, but they can actually bypass that part of the smart contract. Um, which <laughs> defeats the entire purpose of it being in a smart contract that's immutable. So I completely agree. There's, there's, we are so far from a mature uh, marketplace on this now that really is very much, and I, I hate to say this, and I know there's a lot of people on here that are very much, you know, like NFTs of the future. I absolutely believe it. We, we are very much, you know, in that pre-Beanie Baby phase uh, right now of people just trying to understand what is the technology, what's the best use case for. Because right now we saw NFTs that were going for thousands of dollars, um, you know, eight, you know, literally 12 uh, you know, months ago that are worth zero today. And I think that that's way too volatile for anyone to really fully jump in. So um, as we bring this to a close, and I, I, I've got two of you know, the smartest brains in, in, in NFTs and, and copyright here with me, um, I'd love to, and, and uh, Romani, I'll start with you and then we'll go to Peter, just your thoughts around the way that people should be thinking about the space over the, over the next few years, you know, from a very high level, um, you know, where they should put their time and energy into focusing on developing uh, different, different protocols, how to secure uh, true copyright, um, you know, access for, for their purchasers and, or, or if they don't want to, um, how to make sure that they don't uh, give away by accident the, those copyrights. I think particularly if you operate in the creative industries in the creative sector and so copyright is, is, is your bed and butter, uh, I think it's really uh, important for you to, to stop and take the time to understand the technology and to start appreciating that this is not just kind of like an incremental uh, improvement on Web2. This is actually going to be transformational uh, and understand why it's going to be transformation, 
transformationals to be able to better understand uh, how you need to secure your own uh, assets that are often protected by copyright and how you want to play in this space as well. Love it. Peter? Yeah, I would say um, my recommendation for two of those different group, those markets that I talked about. So the owners of intellectual property and personality rights and purchasers of NFTs, the message is the same. Pay attention to the agreements, to the contracts. I mean, they are vitally important. You have to know what you're getting, what rights you're getting, and you have to know what rights you're getting giving away if you're selling a, a work of art or your name to someone else to mint as an NFT. Yeah, and I'll just go with my closing here because I, I appreciate the education both of you guys just gave me. Um, technology is not a replacement in any way, shape, or form for legal compliance. Um, <laughs> you can be technically compliant. You can be technically savvy. You can do all these other things. Uh, but if you do fall outside of the law, it doesn't matter. And Napster was an amazing, revolutionary technology um, that was poorly implemented um, from the aspect that the founders and the, the developers were, were essentially just you know, they got the experience out of it, um, but they, they didn't get the long-term viability out of it. And we, we, we can tell you right now today, Napster 3.0 is launching over on the blockchain. Not entirely sure what they're doing. In fact, uh, I, I know that's Galaxy Digital Bottom. So it really just showcases that um, if you're going to put that, that time, love, energy, and attention into whatever your project is, um, it's great to have the dev team. It's great to have the marketing team. It's great to have, you know, all the, the Discord servers and, and everything else that you want to. Um, bring, bring the adults into the room. Bring the lawyers into the room. Let them at least give you that advice about, so you, you're aware of where you may fall into the gray areas. I think the example of Napster is an interesting one because uh, even though, you know, in the end it was proven to be illegal and it, you know, was taken down, it took 20 years, but we do not listen to music the same way we did when Napster was there. Yep. None of us do. The business models even changed, yep. right? Yeah. And yep. back then, nobody thought that we would not want to own our album, right? That was like craziness to think that. So even though we're in this bear market and we see all these, you know, we're talking about these NFTs and, you know, the speculation is ridiculous and they say it's a smart contract and yet an immutable and then they change the term, et cetera. You need to look beyond that. Yep. And, the genie's and out of the bottle. The genie is out of the bottle. The technology is going to revolutionize the way we, we have digital transactions and creative assets, particularly for those that work in the creative space, they are digital first today, yep. right? Yeah. And, and they're gonna be <clears throat> affected more so than the difference from web one to web two. Uh, the, there, it is going to be transformational what we're gonna go through in the next 10 years. I, I agree. I mean, I have two crates of vinyl punk rock records down in my basement. That's not how I listen to my music. It's a nice collection. Sometimes I look at them, but everything was changed when Napster came along. And now I go to Spotify and I go to Apple Music Store and the world's never going back. Oh, oh. Love it. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Ruani, is always it's just a pleasure talking uh, to you. And, and again, uh, you, you broke your uh, co-hosting um, you know, inauguration here. And so we're, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, Peter, uh, if people want to reach out to you, where's the best place to find you? Sure. You can go to the Brown Rudnick uh, website. That's my law firm. It's at brownrudnick.com. And I'm listed on there. Peter Wilsey. And always happy to help people in this space. 
Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, y Whales, that is uh, Peter and Rorani. Um, and again, tons of copyright information and uh, really excited to kind of continue the conversation as we go forward. Uh, we'll bring you guys back uh, at, and, and have this, you know, kind of year over year because uh, the conversation is not going to stop. And in fact, the technology is going to ramp back up. So uh, for everyone out there, uh, be good, take care and talk soon. Y Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.